You're listening to the Substandard Model. Do you know, Scotch whiskey is actually just fried whiskey, but they fry it in the bottle so it tastes the same. Imagine having sex. I do like how science isn't limited to not giving mice cocaine. Science is fucking S tier, bro. There's a lot of ways of doing cocaine. 10 cubic kilometers of dirt. The neurobiology of cocaine addiction. Reading that gave me a bit more sympathy for drug addicts. Marmalade. The chainsaw. Tarmac. The flushing toilet. The robot Olympics. The kaleidoscope. Fried chicken. General anesthetic. Paraffin. Golf. Paraffin! And sex. Henry, what do these things have in common? They were the chapter names in (laughs) Paraffin Young's autobiography. They were the chapter names in Paraffin, the flushing toilets. Yeah, I mean, they weren't, but I love that idea. I love that idea. Wait, we should give context. Paraffin Young is, I believe, three grades granddad. Um, Yeah, on my dad's side. So you know how, like, today... You know how, like, today we burn fossil fuels and it's ruined humanity? That was Henry Grandad's idea, was to do that. It was him who came up with it. What a ledge. They're actually not all chapter titles in Henry's great-grandfather's biography. They are, in fact, but they are, it's related because they are, in fact, all Scottish inventions. Sex is a Scottish invention. Sex is a Scottish invention, my friend. Sam? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure people were having sex in Africa before they migrated to sorry, Scotland. Sorry, I didn't... When, at what point... Can you point to the time when I said people? No, you can't. Because I know so I animals people, decided I said, they I would sex. start having sex in... How do you know this is in Scotland? We're talking like one and a half billion years ago. Henry, there is an animal in the genus... Microbrachius. So, first of all, let's take you back. Take you back a long, long time ago, about three hundred eighty-five million years ago. Do you know what a placoderm is? Placoderm? You don't. You don't. You don't know what a placoderm is. A placoderm is a kind of fish, like a bony fish. So, you know how we have loads of different kinds of fish. Some of them are like lampreys, and we don't talk about them, or they don't have any jaws or anything. Some of them are like sharks, and they're great, but they don't have bones, so we're nothing like them. Some of them are normal fish, and they're called ray-finned fish or bony fish. And, you know, we're kind of a bit... We came from them. They're the normal fish. The ancestor of the normal fish is what we're talking about here. We're talking about the ancestor of, of all of the jawed vertebrates. So these are vertebrates that have jaws, which is apparently important. And it's one of the placoderms. So have you ever heard of Dunkleosteus? I bet you've heard of Dunkleosteus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you big, know why you've heard big... of Dunkleosteus? Why? Because <laughs> we played goddamn Jurassic World the game in year eight. And Dunkleosteus <laughs> Do you know, I knew Dunkleosteus before classic. Jurassic World the game. Dunkleosteus is No, a... you didn't. Do you know... No one knew Dunkleosteus before Jurassic World the game trademark. You took it a lot more seriously than me, if I remember, just to... Oh my god! Cool I can't. I I can't believe your memory has adjusted to that particular frame of reference because that's complete bollocks. We we would come in every day 
And I'd be like, what level are you at, by the way? And you'd be like, level 38, you? And I'd be like, level 37. And I would silently scratch the bottom of the table in rage. And then the next day I would come in level 58, having gained 20 levels in the span of 12 hours during the night. And I'd be like, what are you then? I'm level 62. And you'd be like, I'm level 83. You were a competitive adversary at Jurassic World the game. Nice. But it doesn't matter. No one cared. Yeah, my point Don't is, Osteus, but only head of fish. They just got like a head yeah. made of concrete. That's their thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They've got a head made of concrete. They've got like a beak, like an alligator snapping turtle. Yes, they did. Well, all, all placoderms did. That's kind of their deal. Placoderm is like plated skin. You know, they, they looked like they were, they were uh, made out of some kind of That's where the word comes armor. from. Placoderm. Yeah, placoderm. Fun fact about Dunkleosteus, a recent paper came out that says they're actually way smaller than everyone thought and they were kind of look like goldfish. And they just had a massive out-of-proportion head as opposed to an in-proportion head, which is kind of funny. But um, Dunkleosis aside, Dunkleosis is just one of a group of placoderms. And in this group of placoderms, we have the enigmatic microbrachius, which I mentioned. Uh-huh. And the thing, is, the thing with placoderms is that there's a lot of debate about placoderms. I have had many debates about placoderms in terms of their taxonomy, their evolutionary history. Uh-huh. Are they monophyletic or are they paraphyletic? You know. There's all sorts of evidence in the fossil record suggesting all sorts of places you can put placoderms. You can say there are ancestors. You can say they're just a dead end in terms of evolution. Most people, though, they think there are ancestors. And one of the pieces of evidence for this is that people generally think that, okay, so you know how there are two kinds of fertilization? There's internal and external. Yeah. So, like, if you're a normal, if most most fish, what they do is they'll, like, put some eggs on the floor. And then a guy will come and just like sort of sperm on them. And then there's the other kind of sex, which, you know, I won't get into, but I'm sure most of the listeners are aware. Which of. is a Scottish invention, actually. Which is a lot um, more intimate. Which is which I'm, I'm I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah, it is a Scottish invention. Blood of is... Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> my, my point is that so so um most placoderms have evidence of external fertilization and blah blah blah, but this very basal placoderm. Very basal, very early on in placoderm evolution, Brachyobrachius. This placoderm had claspers. God damn it! It had external sexual organs, and people were thinking, okay, maybe this means they do internal fertilization. That's kind of cool, but we're not sure. Then, in goddamn Caithness, on the E-Day beds of the Orkney Islands in goddamn Scotland, Scotland, they discovered, they discovered two. Microbrachius on top of each other doing it in Scotland. The yeah. earliest known nathostome to be having sex was discovered in Scotland. And the reason that I say they invented sex is not because, because the thing is okay, I got some bad news. Internal fertilization was kind of being done by sharks a while before. The reason this is important is this evolution of internal fertilization is the one that carried through to us. So it never got lost uh, and it just got kept and we have it. This is where uh, our internal fertilization that, started. Because we know placoderms are bony vertebrates with jaws. Yes, yes. Because it happened a lot of times. A lot of internal fertilization was evolved independently. You could say that like, I don't know, some kinds of salmon invented sex as well. But these guys invented our sex. They invented proper sex, real sex. And this fossil, Henry, the fossil of Microbrachius, and you might notice that I've been saying Microbrachius, the genus name, because I haven't mentioned the species name yet. 
And the reason for that is the species name is named after its discoverer, one Robert Dick. Is Rycobrachius decai, discovered mm. in Scotland the first known species to do, you know, proper sex. Scotland in very serious space right as you should. But the idea, I will be, I will be honest here. They've discovered Rycobrachius decai in other places like Estonia no. and China, but they haven't discovered it having sex. And they first discovered it in Scotland. And it was named after Robert Dick, a Scotsman who discovered it in Scotland, having sex in Scotland. So it's a Scottish invention. Uh-huh. It's a Scottish invention as much as tarmac is. The neurobiology of cocaine addiction. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Another show I thought. I was like, how does cocaine actually work? I've come to realize that it's all dopamine in your brain. The thing, what's interesting about addiction is I think part of this explanation ends up in what gene representation you have in your axons. Because mm. all your cells have all your genes. About 30,000 genes, mm. I think it said here. And what the difference between a liver cell and a brain cell is that the liver cell only chooses to, I guess, use or uh, represent the specific genes that go into making up a liver cell, but it still contains yeah. the instructions to make a brain cell out of itself, but it won't. What what happens is when you use a partic- the brain in a certain way or muscles in a certain way, to say if you're doing weightlifting, the gene representation of the, the 30,000 genes that you have changes slightly based on the function. So if you really use your muscles a lot, it starts representing more genes that make the muscle cells thicker and able to, I guess, to take more strain, etc. Right? And I suppose in brain cells, maybe there's more gene representation for myelin sheets, or or at least they change the gene representation in a way that makes a cell slightly better suited to its purpose. So you can have like small changes in gene representation, but you won't have a change between a liver cell and a brain cell. Anyway, mm-hmm. back to cocaine. Snorting cocaine, injecting cocaine, smoking cocaine. There's a lot of ways of doing cocaine. Basically, it goes into your bloodstream through any one of, number of ways, and it travels around your body, cocaine, the molecule, and then it goes to your brain via your blood supply because your brain gets a lot of blood. When it goes into your brain, what it does is it essentially stops things that reabsorbs dopamine from reabsorbing dopamine. So what dopamine is, is dopamine, I think I've heard it described as a pace setter chemical. Good, I like that. You like pace setter, right? So what it does is it basically, like when, you, when you want to do something with your cell, your cell needs dopamine and you've got, you've got, you've got cells which produce dopamine and you've got cells which take in dopamine. And those, I think the ones that produce and take it in are the same cell. So it kind of just circulates dopamine. I think it just gives dopamine out, takes dopamine in, stores a bit of dopamine inside itself and then gives out more dopamine when it feels like it needs to do more. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Kind of unfortunate in the sense that it, dopamine feels great. So dopamine you get a lot of dopamine after eating chocolate or having an orgasm or, um, if, I don't know, d- drinking water after being thirsty for a very long period of time, right? And right. cocaine cocaine gives you a huge rush of dopamine. And the reason cocaine gives you a huge rush of dopamine is because those cells which give out dopamine and usually take it back in, stop taking it back in because they've got cocaine in their receptor. It stops taking dopamine out of circulation. And so the dopamine just builds up and builds up and builds up. And so all of your cells are going like, mm, yes, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a great time. 
cocaine also affects serotonin and norepinephrine, I think. But I think dopamine's mm-hmm. the main part. So when when it comes to like the dopamine being produced in your neuro in your synapses, uh-huh. it's not so, it's not it's not it's actually it's actually even cooler. Like it's not so much that the cocaine stops you from taking dopamine back up. It stops you from knowing how much dopamine you've already made. So there right. are some receptors on your cell which are basically there to do well. They're, they're what's called they're there to do bookkeeping essentially. So the receptors are there. And if they're getting constantly activated by dopamine, they tell the cell, well, there's probably loads of dopamine out there. Their job is to be like, right, we've just got activated. That means we've already made dopamine. Stop making huh. dopamine. So when they get cocaine, and they think there's less dopamine. When they get cocaine, they stop working. So co- either the, you're either an agonist or an antagonist. If you're an agonist, the receptor would take it and be like, oh, crap, I think this is dopamine. Stop making dopamine. An agonist would decrease your dopamine production. It would make you depressed. <laughs> if it's an antagonist... The cell goes, oh, God, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And it doesn't say anything. So it doesn't tell you when you've made dopamine. So it it fails. Instead of doing wrong bookkeeping, it just fails at bookkeeping. Right. So So you just end up having more dopamine. Yeah. It stops your cells from knowing how much they've already made. So they just keep making it. There's also stuff with uh, the limbic system in your brain. The limbic system is essentially a, a, a system of lots of different bits of your brain that often we learn about that send projections to each other and are generally associated with emotion and often with personality. And it just contains loads of different parts of our brain that, that are very often interacting with each other. It refers, mm. It's like a sort of organ system, but in your brain. Right, so they, it floods the limbic system essentially with dopamine, which means you get pleasure, euphoria, and loss mm-hmm. of control, compulsive yep. responses to drug-related cues. The interesting part is, I think there's a, the part of the uh, limbic system that is uh, affected by cocaine and, and gets this buildup of, of dopamine is the nucleus accumbens. Accumbens. Ah, nucleus accum- yeah, the nucleus accumbens. Accumbens. Yes. Have you mentioned these before in this podcast? I don't believe so. Nucleus accumbens. What happens is that cocaine in the nucleus accumbens, it changes the gene expression in the cells in the nucleus accumbens. And the specific cell that it affects is a component that produces a protein called FOSB, Delta FOSB. And like dopamine, Delta FOSB is another pace setting chemical. So there's a genetic, there's a gene in the nucleus accumbens Cocaine affects the gene expression of this gene, leads it to produce more Delta FOSB, which is a similar chemical to dopamine in the sense that it's a pace-setting chemical. However, the way it's different from dopamine is that it doesn't leave the cell that it, it's setting the pace of, and like dopamine, dopamine sort of floats around. FOSB, Delta FOSB will remain in its cell when it hits a cell, right? Mm-hmm. And what it does mm-hmm. in that cell is it stimulates certain genes in that cell. And I think the general term for things like Delta FOSB is called a, is a genetic transcription factor. Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. Right. So, so, so what cocaine does is it affects multiple genetic transcription factors, actually. But Delta FOSB is the main one, and it's the most long-lasting factor that it affects. Um, and that means that uh, chronic cocaine exposure causes Delta FOSB to accumulate in high levels. Long-term exposure to cocaine results in a large amount of expression of Delta FOSB, which sits in your cells for a very long period of time. And it says after about two months or so of you know prolonged cocaine use, you can end up with changes in the structure of the neurons in your brain. We all know what neurons look like. They're sort of like little trees or little hands. They've got lots of little stringy bits coming off them, right? And what it says is that with prolonged exposure to Delta FOSB, the 
nucleus acubens will collect a greater volume of nerve signals because all of the local nerve cells around them grow more dendrites. So it's like a bigger radio antenna receiving more radio waves, or it's it's greatly more affected by radio waves that it receives, right? Because it's got more stringy bits on them. So they saw in animals that um, taking cocaine for extended periods of time made them want to take cocaine more, first of all. And it made them easier. Wait, which <laughs> Where did they test this? Which animals did they get addicted with to mice? Cocaine? There was actually a really interesting thing where they said <laughs> they they on some tests with mice they got anim- like mice on cocaine, and they would oh give the mice a choice between cocaine and food. And the dopamine release from cocaine was to such an extent in mice that there were mice who chose cocaine every single time to the point that they starved. Jesus. Yeah, so it's like that thing with water where the dopamine release you get after drinking water after being thirsty for a very long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. The thing you get where you're eating food after not eating, after being hungry for a very long period of time, well, cocaine outweighs that dopamine release. So mice are choosing to just do cocaine as opposed to eating and they starve to death. Drugs are so weird. They're like, they're oh. basically like bugs, bugs in the system. They're like glitches in our evolution. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Like, like all this chemical managed to hack the system and give us the pleasure receptors when they're not supposed to be working. So basically, cocaine goes to Delta Fos B, goes to protein production, goes to dendritic sprites, what it says. So you increase the number of sprouts you get on your dendrites in your brain. Um, They saw people people gained a more addictive... It's it's really hard to prove this, though, is the problem. But, But I reckon there's something there, especially considering that you get more dendrite growth after doing a lot of mm-hmm. cocaine because you have more delta fosby yes no your brain definitely changes shape i mean that happens every time like every time you do a repeated stimulus or something appears to be you know happening your brain will grow extra dendrites to it and if your nucleus accumbens is being constantly activated by taking cocaine uh-huh. then yeah you definitely you definitely grow i mean there's a genetic component to it as well there's evidence that people could have more of a tendency towards being addicted to something through their own genetics uh-huh. which isn't good <laughs> Uh-huh. what's scary about cocaine though is they so in one of these experiments but in this experiment they just changed the genetics of the mouse so that it expressed delta phosby more that's all they did two oh, identical yeah, yeah, right. mice one mouse expresses more delta phosby that mouse who's expressing more delta phosby has never had cocaine before though right mm-hmm. uh-huh. what they found with that mouse is that mouse wanted cocaine more than the mouse who didn't express delta phosby I, I don't know how they determined that, but uh, I'm assuming scientifically because okay. they said, right, a greater drive or mm-hmm. craving for cocaine, this mouse. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I need cocaine, man. I don't know. It's in my genetics. <laughs> um, and and they found that they could get the mouse on the same sort of high, same sort of brain activity on one third of the dose of cocaine as the mouse who didn't have as much Delphosby. Wow. Which means that cocaine, yeah. doing cocaine causes you to produce more Delta Fos B, which causes you to want more cocaine, which is kind of scary because cocaine's just a chemical. And that's the kind of like system that you would expect a virus to take, right? Like it feels complex. Like a virus would get into your body and want you to like, like, what was it? Toxoplasma Gondi. Toxoplasma Gondi makes you want to do more stuff that gives you more Toxoplasma Gondi. That's its whole thing. It just, yes. It wants to go to other things to get more. To- it's all about monopolizing and making more Toxoplasma Gondi. The more Toxoplasma Gondi, the better for Toxoplasma Gondi, right? This is weird because you've got this, you know, this, this just, it's solid. It's just a cocaine, right? It's just a chemical, right? 
and it seems to want people to do more cocaine. <laughs> we want to do more cocaine, Henry. That's what we want. Yeah, we want to do more cocaine. So our brains are like, we should do more cocaine, and we're like, yeah, what a great idea. Yeah, but why does do doing cocaine, cocaine cause your gene to express a thing that wants you to do more cocaine? Two months worth of long-lasting gene expression causes your brain to permanently change structure and make you want cocaine more in general. That's pretty cool. If that doesn't say addiction, then... I mean, this is just like... I mean, all addictions will do a similar thing, but cocaine's bloody good at it. Cocaine is like... Gets your dopamine going. Reading that gave me a bit more sympathy for drug addicts. Termite, termites, termites. You social? Yeah, they're you social insects. They're detritophores. They are um, and just a bit. This is background information, so you know, you know, you don't have to pay too much. Assuming attention you've to not it. listened to a previous project podcast, what is eusociality, Sam? If you want to, ah, eusociality is like the fact you know how bees have hives and ants have nests, and they all work together to do to to collect food and have babies and essentially be very efficient. That's what eusociality is. It's everyone working together in a nice, happy family and um, dying for the colony and doing all that sort of stuff. You might think that termites are a lot like ants or bees or wasps, right? They are both eusocial, but they're not related. So bees and wasps are in Hymenoptera, and termites are closely related to mantises and cockroaches. They're oh, a completely weird. different group. It is weird, isn't it? And they, they, they eat different things. They eat like leaf litter and soil hummus. So, you know, love them. Hummus but this is, um, this, this, is just, this is just some context, because... What I want to, what I want to talk about, is that what I think is something that we found in Brazil, Henry. We found it in Brazil, right? And I, I think it's probably the most impressive organized structure ever created by anything. That's what I'm going to say. So in Brazil. We found a termite nest, a termite mound. In fact, there was a bunch of termite mounds that were connected. Right. And it was it was a bunch of termite mounds. It was a lot of termite mounds that were connected. It was actually 230,000 kilometers squared of termite mounds that were connected. That's quite a so lot. So an area that's bigger than Britain, actually, of termite mounds that were interconnected. That's quite a lot. It's a, it's it's a, it really is quite a lot of mounds that are interconnected. So just for some context, this contains about two hundred million mounds, right? Mm. They're about two point five meters tall mm. and about nine meters in diameter. Mm. So they're really big, and there's a lot of termites in those mounds. They're about twenty meters apart for mm. an area the, the size of Britain. And in order to make these mounds, Henry, they displaced roughly ten cubic kilometers of dirt barking across, hell across the mound so that's a lot so that's that's millions of times the size of the great pyramids of giza yeah yeah by the way millions by the way they're million oh yeah million by the way they're they're older than the great pyramids of giza by the way this structure is four thousand years old so it's about the same time as when the great pyramids of giza were built it's yeah, a they, lot bigger. They thought we a thought we could outdo bigger. them, and then they. No, they they completely destroyed us. The yeah. size of Britain, Henry. It's in Brazil. It's all in Brazil. They all connected. 
how much can go from one to the other it's one huge city just wait till you hear about the the termite pharaoh the termite pharaoh the termite pharaoh the termite sphinx i can't even imagine like this is just off the charts better than anything we could ever dream of like this is so much more the levels of organization that required to make this what's that these have complex ventilation systems and pheromonal systems that oh, can that's a very interesting thing about that actually their ventilation yeah really they're, interesting their ventilation is really, there's a lot really of physics clever. in that um what was i going to say about uh the, isn't there that weird fact about the entire weight of all now eight billion people on the planet is like millions and millions of times less than the entire weight of all the termites on the planet Oh yeah, I imagine this is contributing quite a lot to that. This this one nest, the real the real thing that sets termites apart from ants is their diet, and that's probably the reason that they could make nests this large. So ants make really really big nests, loads of individuals, right? And they're they're, they're huge. They can get very very old, but they don't tend to be able to get on the level of displacing, you know, multiple cubic miles of soil over 4,000 years. That doesn't yeah. tend to be where ants get to. And the reason that this kind of happened with termites is there's a very specific kind of forest called Caatinga Forest, right? That's found in Brazil. Well, found in a very big area of Brazil, the size of Britain. And this, this Caatinga Forest, they do mass shedding of their leaves. They're deciduous. So they shed all their leaves at a certain time of year. And during this time of year, there's a huge glut of food. And termites need, essentially, they need so many individuals to maximize their ability to take up this amount of food during this time of the year that it's beneficial for them to do cooperation. It becomes really good for them to cooperate. And in fact, competition over this very limited food resource becomes really, really detrimental and they can't really survive in this area. So the nests that were able to communicate and cooperate when they're food gathering and they were able to connect, survive those better. nests survive much better because of their limited resources such a strong incentive to cooperate that any time a nest would set up, it would join this previously existing nest and essentially just become one mega city where any termite can go to any other nest and they can travel huge distances and food is constantly being dispersed from nest to nest based on pheromone signals about how much each nest requires food. And each nest will send out multiple termites per night, 50 to 70 workers. It will collect the detritus, it will bring them back and distribute them to which nest need them most. Um, they can regulate how many termites are in each nest based on times of year, how sunny it is. I mean, nine meters large is the size of one of these 200 million mounds that has been created from you. First of all, think about 200 mounds. Then think <laughs> of a thousand groups of 200 mounds. Then think of a thousand groups of a thousand groups of 200 mounds. And that's how many mounds there are. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all absolutely massive. Like there are pictures of people standing on them and they're just huge. They're huge mounds. If one of those existed in Britain, it would have a fucking gift shop. But there are two hundred million of them just in Brazil. And the re- you know the reason we didn't really discover this until quite recently? Because we didn't. We found this. Yeah, quite I was recently. gonna say like well, the, the, we did, first of all, we didn't we didn't really notice they were connected. The only reason we knew they were connected is because we found genetic evidence of one mound being connected to another mound across different sites throughout the complex. And the reason we didn't even really recognize this is because, unfortunately, huge regions of the Katinga Forest have recently been cleared for agriculture. Uh, so we've basically, I mean, we are in the process of destroying, I think, the most impressive structure ever created by an organism or an animal. Definitely. I mean, it's it's probably not, I mean, the mounds that are being cleared and the mounds that are going to be, that are not going to survive. It's just going to get smaller and smaller over time. And eventually it's just going to be a fossil 
It's just going to be oh. huge, metal, huge biogenic. It's just going to be biogenic structures, and we're going to think we're going to wonder how they got there. But just fuck, just fucking hell! It's so cool. Sam, do you believe in time travel? Yes. Uh, okay, what kind of time travel? Forward in time, slowly. Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. P for proton, which is 2.793 mu n, and mu n equal to negative 1.93 mu n, 1836. That was a rough bit of podcasting there. <laughs> Jeez. Essentially, it's potential energy, like, like all things are. Pineapple eats you. Generate into a world of pain. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Do people say the of? Okay, okay. How are we doing this? Okay, basically. <laughs> and that's because the whole of Enceladus, the whole moon, is being squished and squashed by Saturn. I'm gonna be honest. It looks like the Death Star. Sam, have you heard of glass frogs? Oh yeah, they're great. No, you better not know this about glass frogs. Is it the thing that came out this week about why they're so secretive? Oh fuck. No, I think, I don't know, I don't know, Henry. Do we all have aphantasia? Do you know what microtubules are? Uh, I mean, I can imagine. It's a, it's a small tubule, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, spot on, yeah. <laughs> you would have an electron field. We're not yeah. experts, let's just put it out here. Because we've been recently alerted by my mum that some of her physics professor friends may be <laughs> listening to this podcast. Um, and that... That made us feel bad. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, Bert Henry's mom is always is always crucial for a good podcast, I think. All right, Sam. Henry. You're listening to the Substandard Model.